Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris. And this is John. We got a very interesting interview for you today. Bullshit. Oh, I like that. That's actually in the title of the book. So we that's can say what, that, right? That's what John was. I mean, yeah. We don't have any FCC guidelines. I don't, I don't think so. Is that who it is? <laughs> the NRA? I don't know. Whoa. What? National Restaurant Association. Oh, oh. Uh, I thought um, you were talking about the National Radio Association. Aha. Uh-huh. So this week we interview, he he has two names and we never got to the reason why I meant to ask him, Brandon or BJ. He said he goes by Brandon, yet everything is referred as BJ. Um, Last name Mendelssohn. And he wrote a book called Social Media is Bullshit. And it was funny. Well, I guess I addressed it at the beginning of the interview, but I was really hesitant. I was like, ah, this book can't be any good. And you always want to drink the juice, you know, that Kool-Aid behind social media. But he does a pretty good job of telling you why you shouldn't. And you're going to have to listen to the interview to figure out why. And believe me, it's a compelling case. Yeah, right? it's a really good book. And we have to remind our users, follow us on Twitter at Smart People Pod <laughs> and like us on Facebook. Yeah, actually, we, uh, we've been getting a lot of people following on Twitter and we, we do appreciate it. I mean, as much as social media is overhyped and it's not really understood properly, there's a place for it. And he says that in the interview, in his book. So 
it, it is a way to connect and um, and we are trying to connect with you guys. And actually, we have something really cool coming up where we're going to be much more active on Twitter, primarily just to pass along the information. It's not we're not going to be asking for anything. We just want to be able to give you guys some more of what we're learning during these interviews in digestible chunks. So keep an eye out at Smart People Pod, which is funny because social media is bullshit. At the same time, you know, you guys are doing a great job still utilizing our Amazon widget, which is at the top of our page, smartpeoplepodcast.com or at the Amazon tab. So I think that's that's it when it comes to our housekeeping items. Let's nope, there is one more. Please go over to iTunes, rate, comment and review the podcast. It helps us out. We actually had like six or seven reviews come in the last two weeks, which is awesome. And that actually moved us up on the education chart, which was even more awesome because that meant more downloads, which hopefully means us being able to bring you cooler guests, guests. cooler content, all the above. And it's happening. We have some really cool guests lined up. So let's talk a little bit more about Brandon. A really interesting story. He has like 700,000 Twitter followers. But he did it before, this was years ago, he gained all these when he was a big believer in social media and he was doing campaigning. And then he realized how little all of that following meant. Yeah, I mean, he talks about it a lot in the book, but basically he went to Twitter and said, hey, I'm doing this breast cancer awareness fundraiser campaign thing. And they featured him on their suggested user list. So when a new person signs up for Twitter, he was listed on there as somebody who they should follow. And he just goes on to talk about when he actually wanted to raise money, he reached out to all his Twitter followers. And you'll have to read the rest of the book to find out what happened from that. But spoiler alert, it wasn't good. Yeah. And uh, he's written for the Huffington Post, CNN, MTV, Mashable, Forbes, Comics Alliance, a bunch of uh, outlets. He does his own consulting for kind of marketing and how to connect with your customer. Really smart guy and really knows his stuff and has been battle tested. So it was a really fun interview and felt like a conversation. So go ahead and enjoy this interview with Brandon Mendelson. All right, Brandon. Well, thanks for being on today. As we mentioned in the intro, your book, Social Media is Bullshit, is really interesting. And initially, when we first talked, I was kind of skeptical. I oftentimes buy into the public perception really easily. And I'm like, oh, the news says it and that this says it and other people tell me I'm going to do it. And so I read the title of your book and I was like, I don't I don't know about this. And then I read the line, the people who made it big during the gold rush were selling shovels. And I was like, oh, my God, I've been duped. So I was hoping you could kind of, as an intro to your book, but more importantly, that point alone, tell us what you meant by that. Yeah, you know, my whole experience in getting into the book comes from a anti-breast cancer tour that I did back in 2010 with my ex-wife. We were big social media believers, and we were big fans of Chris Brogan and Gary Vaynerchuk and Seth Godin and all, and Guy Kawasaki. And I was like, all right, well, if, if social media is so wonderful, I should be able to one, couch surf my way across America while I'm raising awareness to save money, and two, use the power of social media to raise a lot of money for a not-for-profit that I was working with. And so I set out to do that, and the tour was like a giant disaster, like in every respect. And so when it was over, I turned around to all those people. I wrote them a polite letter, and I said, hey, you know, I'm a big fan. I've gone to your seminars. I've 
purchased your books and you know, I applied everything that you said to apply and none of it worked. So what, what do you think went wrong? And the response was, well, that's not how social media works. <laughs> and so that was, that was the moment where I was like, well, hey, wait a second. This is exactly how you say it works. Mm. And I started to do some digging. And, you know, the book is born out of three years of actual research. And people see the title and they don't think that there's like anything to back it up. But there's about three years worth of research showing that these guys make these ridiculous claims and they're they're pretty much baseless, not always, but 90% of the time. And it's all being done in an effort to cash in on a hot buzzword. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I agree, the book has a lot of substance to it and it, it's it's very well done. And as I mentioned, I usually just jump into these things. I got 20 self-help books of some sort. And my thing sure. is I like to pull out a couple of small tidbits and, and run with those. And that's fine. But one thing I realized, especially in this new job that I've taken and doing marketing is everybody needs content, but there isn't enough good content out there. So people just right. create it or they're just like, I mean, the top things to get read are top 10 lists and how to improve yourself with this. And let's scare the shit out of you this way. And it all, <laughs> if you really dive in, it all merges together. Yeah, you know, there's there's two big issues that no one really talks about. And the first, which I start to address in the book, and I really didn't get into it as much as I wanted to, was, uh, you know, the, the big buzzword now is content marketing. Like, like you hear that thrown around a lot since the book has come out. And basically what they're saying is, you know, you have to have compelling content. But then you read the advice to put that content together, and you're like, wow, this is going to get... I'm just going to generate like reams of mediocre crap. Like I'm not going to get yes. anything the following. And so there's so much bad advice as to how to create content for the web and how to make it sound. And so uh, we buy that advice. And so it's kind of taken you know people's potential and really eliminated it completely because of all the bad advice and because we don't really question the stuff that comes out. The other thing is that with Google, you know, they control over 80% of the world's search traffic. And, you know, they'll tell you they're not a monopoly. They said that to the DOJ uh, not too long ago in the FTC. And the FTC actually agreed, stupidly. They control so much traffic that entire businesses are built around manipulating Google. And by manipulating Google, you know, what you have to do is have these, ten, you know, the top ten stupid things that happen to the celebrity or just controversial things like anything that Jenny McCarthy says. <laughs> Like if you, if you ever wonder why people listen to Jenny McCarthy when she tells kids not to get inoculated because it might cause autism, you know people don't publish that because it's, she's accurate. They publish it because it's crazy, and Google rewards crazy with search traffic. It, it it is. I mean, John, what do you think about this? John's our yeah. resident tech guy. Yeah, and Brandon, I mean, I have to admit, when I read your book, you broke my heart. Like, I've always looked up to guys like Leo Laporte, Kevin Rose, Gary Vanderchuk, all these guys, and I'm like, oh, they can do it, so can I. And then you pointed out the flaw in that thinking, and I was like, holy shit, he's right. Every single one of these guys had either some type of celebrity help or corporate backing help, or what have you. And it's not really this, I'm going to get struck by lightning thing, and this is going to happen over and over and over. Like, granted, yes, people get lucky and that kind of stuff. But you point out that there really is no coincidence that most of these smaller things that get out there are corporate backed or have been pushed by a celebrity. You know what, you know what really bothers me is that there is a really popular Facebook 
page called I Effing Love Science. And it's like, it's one of the most shared. And originally I was like, oh, that, that's really cool. You know, they're, they're promoting science and it's, you know, it's funny and it seems to be organic. And then I found out I was at a conference recently, which I I do not like going to those conferences at all, but I'm almost like obligated to go to a few of them each year. And I was at one of them and they were saying that that page is actually just, a, you know, an advertiser created that for one of their clients. But they don't. It's not a direct ad, so they're paying for pushing content out there and building fans and things like that. And then every so often, you'll see if you look carefully, uh, they'll mention the product. And so everything, you know, even if it has the appearance of being this legitimate organic thing, I mean, nine times out of ten, it's not. And, and that bothers me because there's no, there's rarely a disclosure about it until well after the fact. You know, like a year or two will go by and someone will say. Oh, by the way, that was uh, Crispin Porter and Bogoski, which, which is a big advertising firm, and you know they're the ones that were behind that Facebook page. So uh, sorry, you thought it was legitimate. Yeah, and you know that's actually something that I've recently started to notice too, where especially with like political posts on Facebook, there's a lot of people that right. share these ridiculous pictures or like conspiracy theory things, and you see stuff starting to get shared, you know, half a million times or 250,000 likes and all that stuff. And those, I recently found out that most of those pages are built up and then they try to get these controversial shares out there and then they sell them off to advertising companies overseas where they're saying, oh, okay, we got you know 500,000, a million likes on this now. Now we're going to give it to whoever the advertiser is and they're just going to sprinkle their advertisements throughout it. And I find it funny because these people get passionate about sharing this stuff, being like, oh, look at this fact now. And they don't realize that they're just playing into a huge marketing game. Absolutely. You know, it's, um, I have no doubt in my mind that the NRA, what happened over at Samuel Elementary, has been doing that. You know, that they've been propping up, like, they call them sock puppets. That's the uh, industry term for them. And they're dummy accounts that are run by, like, one person. And usually that one person runs, like, 100 of them that pop up and create these fake Facebook pages and these fake profiles across different networks. And they're just pushing nonsense, you know? And it looks like it's organic, but it's not at all the case. It's almost scary how little we know or the average person knows about social media and where things come from. I mean, likes, for example, can be can be purchased for almost nothing. And there's so many fake accounts. And Facebook is is really losing a lot of steam on this recently. I mean, I know they're trying to crack down because people are realizing that the, this advertising stream and, and medium isn't legit. And I don't really think it's providing any value. What are your thoughts on that? You know, there's two things that just happened recently, and that's one of the frustrating things of a book is once it's out, you can't go back and be like, oh, by the way, somebody's going to add like this awesome thing. So with Facebook, there's documented evidence, and it keeps coming up. Like when I first saw it, I was like, all right, well, maybe someone is just pissed at Facebook. But it, it's keep, it keeps coming up that people are paying for likes and ads on there, and they're seeing fake clicks. Or they're seeing like clicks randomly from like the Middle East. Yes. You know, that are that they can't trace. And not coincidentally, Gawker did a pretty and Gawker I, I you know, I don't I hesitate to to put them in a good light because they have really good people that work there. They, you know, Drew McGur uh, Magary, who is the author of the Post Mortal and uh, Hamilton Nolan. And you know, they're really good, but sometimes Gawker just is terrible. But uh not too long ago, at around the same time as fake likes were happening 
they did an expose talking about how Facebook has like this virtual army of people that are like the freelancers and their job is to go and scrub Facebook with bad content. And that came out around the same time these fake link stories came out. And mm. it's not a cognitive leap to suggest that these people are scrubbing stuff off of Facebook, but they're also clicking on people's ads right. because they are mostly from, you know, they're not from the United States. And that's where a lot of people see the clicks for the different campaigns. I mean, the other thing is at, at the other conference I went to, I went to uh, two of them in the fall with social media marketers, which you can talk about. And uh, someone at Facebook approached me, and I thought she was going to punch me in the face. Like, she was, she marched up to me. Like, I, I was bracing for impact. Like, I thought anything <laughs> she was going to pull back and, like, deck me. Uh, but what she said to me was, you know, you're absolutely right in that it's, we don't really know. You know, like, I can tell you from the data that we see that it's so big and it's such an early stage. It's not that we can't, we can't make suggestions, but this idea that the social media marketers put out there that, you know, Facebook is like laser focused and that you'll hit exactly who you're looking to hit. It's just, it's impossible because there's just so much raw information coming through and they have at this point, anyway, no way to really demonstrate, okay, well this happened on Facebook and then this happened in reality. You know, there's some anecdotal evidence. I know, Someone uh, told me about like a cupcake store in New York City that put up a Facebook ad, and the next thing they know, there was like a huge line of people. Oh, wow. uh, so there's little things like that, but they can't demonstrate it across the board and say, "You you did this, and then you got that." But for Facebook, who you know, 80% of their revenue is advertising, they can't come out and publicly say that. You know, they can't go to advertisers and be like, "Yeah, give us money, and, and maybe you'll get what you're looking for." You know, they, they just can't do that. So there's this. This is myth that they almost have to pebble, which is a shame because they do have smart people working there that are that are solving you know very challenging problems. But you know it is a business, and they're almost forced to lie at this point. I look at social media, and it kind of spawned from the word social networking, and sure. on its face, like social networking is just meant to connect people that you normally wouldn't connect to. And right. it does that. And you can develop friendships and stuff like that through it. But when did it when did we start looking at it being like, oh, we're gonna be able to sell this to more people now? Or we're gonna be able to sell our product to more people. Well, you know, it's funny that uh eighty percent of the people that use Facebook or I'm sorry, eight out of ten of the users out of uh that use Facebook are not based in the United States. But when the economic bubble hit, you know, with the uh, with the housing market and everything back in 2008 and maybe December of 2007, if you want to be technical, we had in America a whole bunch of knowledge workers laid off, and those are jobs that are not coming back. You know, if you talk about the job recovery now with our with our economic state, most of the jobs that are coming back are are more low skilled labor. You know, they're, they're retail and hospitality and things like that. Uh, so you have this entire class of knowledge workers who lost their job in 2007-2008, and they had nothing. So there was a lot of real estate brokers and people who worked in advertising and sales and things like that. And that's really when the social media marketing bubble started to pop up. And there were guys before that, you know, there was like Tim O'Reilly, who's made a career for himself pretty much by selling you know, bullshit and saying, oh, well, look at web 2 and how wonderful and amazing this is. Uh, and so... These knowledge workers kind of took their lead from Tim O'Reilly and Robert Scoble and Leo LaPorte to a little lesser extent. And, so, and Guy Kawasaki, he's like 
don't even get me started on Guy Kawasaki. Uh, <laughs> but they, they saw them and they said, okay, there's an opportunity. And they all, they all kind of, you know, coalesced around this buzzword of, of, of social media. And that's when, that's really when it's starting to happen. And it almost created this, um, this weird bubble of reinforcement where like, if you go to a social media conference, there, there's some nice people there. You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they're all assholes. Sure. But for for the most part, there's certainly this constant like reinforcement of what they're saying, and that sort of just kept growing and growing and growing. And some people started to make money. I mean, there was this guy named Dave Kirpin who I debated in Vegas and absolutely destroyed, by the way. And you know, people look at him and they see him signing multi-million dollar deals with like Pepsi and different companies, and they go, "Well, there's a model for success in that." And so, even though Dave doesn't know what he's talking about, and that's a factual statement, you know, it doesn't matter because there is this market that was created from all this hype and talk, and the uh, the media got into it because at the same time, all these jobs uh, were lost. The big corporations that own the media, you know, people talk about like the you know print is dying because of advertising losses and things like that. Well, well, no, it's the media contracts because they're all owned by large corporations and those large corporations wanted to cut costs and they saw social media wrongly as like an alternative. And so they embraced it and they forced all of their journalists to embrace it. And, you know, you can't come out of a J school now without being a true believer in social media, which is spelled a lot of trouble for me in the book. <laughs> and so the media didn't question this either. So you had like these two forces coming together of all of these knowledge workers that were, you know, rightfully looking for money, uh, perhaps in the wrong place, and then at the same time the national media in America saying social media is wonderful and not looking at it critically, and that's really where it, where it sort of exploded into this the entire multi-million-dollar industry. That's what I really like is you say throughout your book you say things don't happen on social media and then move into mainstream media. It's the other way around. I mean, it's like if something right. happens on TV, then it becomes big on Twitter. You know, Ashton Kutcher is big on Twitter because he was on, he's been on TV for 10 years and all this stuff. I mean, the idea that it's the other way around or you can just create something off of just this social media platform is crazy and realizing you, you know, you talk about how print is still a big deal, which seems mind-blowing to me. But I can I can understand it. You know, it's funny. Ashton Kutcher often comes up as like the social media success story. Yeah. And all you have to do is look at the ratings for Two and a Half Men for when he come on, when he, when he came onto the show, and you can see the ratings decline. And so the theory was there was a lot of stories that you know places like Mashable and a lot of technology blogs, which are very hit and miss in terms of quality, huh. uh, a lot of them were suggesting that. Ashton Kutcher would generate ratings because of his Twitter following, and that was not at all the case. And then shit, my dad says was also another example of that, where you know it was a very funny Twitter feed, and Justin Halpern, I, I like him, he's a very funny guy, but there was a lot of hype about, oh well, you know, look at all the millions of followers he has on Twitter, that will translate into ratings. And again, it absolutely did not happen. But the national American media, and this is something I found out just in the past two months don't like to talk about that stuff. You know, like the Canadian media, if you go to my press page over at bjmendelton.com, uh, you'll see a lot of national Canadian exposure because to them, they were all about talking about this stuff and saying, well, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't work the way it does. But in America, you know, when you talk to reporters at, at the big national outlets, they'll be like, yeah, I know it's bullshit, but I can't say it. <laughs> and so every year you'll see a story run 
and just recently the LA Times had this thing um, talking about how studio executives were unhappy with social media not producing results, but they're still spending the money on it. And that story reoccurs. Like you can go through the archives and see like virtually the same story reappear every year since 2008. And there's never any analysis from like the LA Times or Variety or the Hollywood Reporter saying, "Well, why is this not working?" And so it's just like, "Oh, well, studio executives upset." And, and so like you know, the national media in the United States doesn't want to talk about this stuff critically. They, they don't want to look at it and be like, "Oh, well, Ashton Kutcher couldn't generate results from his Twitter following." Instead, they just want to talk about how many followers he had. And the thing with print, you know, it's funny, in Glenn Falls, I mean, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to give him a plug because he's kind of a douche, but uh, <laughs> there's a, a local paper called The Chronicle. It's run by a name, this guy named Mark Frost. And he could be nice to other people, but he was always just kind of a, a jerk to me. And uh, it's very profitable. Like, and it's not anything special. It's just he figured out that when it comes to print, you know, the thing that matters now is being local and independently owned and being able to write someone's name and then have that person pick it up and go, oh, look, I was mentioned in the paper, hmm. as opposed to, like, the bigger daily newspaper that was in Glens Falls, the Post-Star, uh, which is owned by Lee Enterprises, which isn't even based in New York. It's based out of Iowa, uh, and they keep cutting costs and cutting beats and cutting coverage. And if you pick up the Post-Star, generally on the front page, it's an Associated Press story, but if you pick up the Chronicle... It's like the local Rotary Club. And that has proven across America to be a model for success in print, but it's not sexy to talk about. You know, like it's no one wants to talk about these local papers that are doing awesome because it's not it's not a good story. You know, like the national media, there's a great book called uh, It's Not News, It's FARC by Drew Curtis. Uh, he's the FARC.com founder. He's also a really huge college basketball fan. So if you ever like approach Drew Curtis and just start talking to him about college basketball that's a good way to start nice. going. Uh, but in that book he talks about how the media the national media in America generally focus on certain sort of stories and they don't like to stray from them and so because of that model and because of the economic pressure that's put on them from there uh, and it's not to say that corporate ownership is bad you know I'm not one of those corporations are evil guys but they, you, you can certainly point to the print business and say well here's where uh, they're certainly doing things the wrong way, but we don't talk about what's being done the right way because it doesn't fit into this corporate mindset. And so it's, it's really a tragedy that we don't have these conversations, which is why I like the podcast and the smaller media outlets, because we can actually talk about this shit and be like, hey, you know, this is a thing that's going on, but you just don't, we won't see it in the New York Times. You will never see in the New York Times social media is bullshit. Right. Like, I can tell you, I can guarantee you it will absolutely never happen because they don't want to hear it. They're very much, this is wonderful and amazing and we don't want to run with the counter story. Yeah, and I find it funny too because, you know, even when you were on, I guess it was MSNBC or CNBC, one of the two, um, and they were interviewing you, they still even wouldn't mention the name of the, the full book even though it was oh, a, yeah. a cable yeah. news program. They blurted it out and they, you know, made it rhyme with you know, the dog Shih Tzu or, or whatever the guy on, on the panel was saying. But yeah, I, I find it funny that, you know, you mentioned that the media doesn't like the stuff that's not sexy because you, you know, talked to Tony Shea and he said that Zappos was, if not more a success story because of the telephone as opposed right. to, to social media, but nobody ever wants to talk about that because, you know, telephone marketing, like how sexy is that? It's not at all. Right, 
and doesn't use the right buzzwords. And, and right. every so often, to this day, you know, people still point to Zappos and go, oh, well, look at the social media success story, even though it's been proven since almost since the start of LI that uh, that's not true. And the CEO is out there saying it's absolutely 100% not true. But they keep pointing to it and saying, oh, look at that, because of that reinforcement bubble that happened. So, you know, even with Tony Shea saying, no, you're wrong, <laughs> you've got this uh, industry of like alleged experts and gurus and ninjas and whatever they want to call themselves uh, reinforcing false beliefs. But, you know, with Zappos, it's very much a story of one, Harvard. Uh, if you pick up Delivering Happiness, it, it's very clear early on, uh, which is the Tony Shea book, that he met the CFO at Harvard. And if he hadn't, then, you know, Zappos wouldn't exist to his day. So, I mean, and that gets lost about Facebook, too. Mm-hmm. Even with the social network that came out, when you hear stories about Facebook, it's almost uh, a footnote. And you can see the New York Times did that recently with uh, there's this girl named Emma Cullen who sold a book to uh, one of the big publishers that was originally a Tumblr blog. And originally, if you read it and you're not looking at it carefully, you're like, oh, well, this is a success story of someone starting a Tumblr blog and going viral. And then there's like almost a footnote buried deep in the story that goes, her brother is the lead singer of the band Vampire Weekend. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, well, you know, that, that's a horse of a different color. Right. Uh, and that happens, that happens a lot with Facebook and Zappos and a lot of these other companies where, you know, the, the, the Harvard connection is almost downplayed in favor of something that, that's more superficial. Like the success of Facebook is, is pictures. You know, like if you, I've read a lot of the history. There's um, the connector, which is the timepiece about when Mark Zuckerberg was like man of the year or whatever it was uh, that they put out. And that talks about the you know growth of Facebook coming from photos. And then there's, I can't think of it. Um, there's a book about Facebook. There's a, there's a number of them, but there's one, it's like the authorized story. Hmm. And I want to say it's written by David Kirkpatrick. And, and you know, it, it, it makes them look good because he had direct access to Zuckerberg and all the other ones. But even in that book, he admits the Facebook growing because of photos and not because uh, it's this revolutionary social network that people were able to play with and market to things to each other. And, but that gets downplayed in all of these narratives from social media marketers. And so it, it's really fun to watch what gets selected to be the story and what doesn't. And when you talk about Zappos, you know, it's all customer service. You know, when Zappos has over 70%, attention rate with their customers. In fact, most of their customers aren't new at all. You know, they're just people who have previously used Zappos and then maybe they'll refer a friend, but more often than not, they just, once they've used the service, they just keep on coming back and that's where they make most of the money. So I have to ask you something. I mean, especially with the book being called Social Media is Bullshit. Do you think it's still necessary to play in the social media game, even though it hasn't proven to be as successful as, you know, these marketers want to say it is? You know, it depends on where you are in life. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. Just this morning I woke up and uh, I got Google Alerts for the book, you know, because I, I like seeing that some people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I pride myself on being readily accessible. Like people can email me or call me at any time, and I like being able to talk to them. Yeah, I have and to interrupt you real grabbed... quick. You put your phone number in the book a couple times. Has right. that led to any i mean do you regret that yet or no, <laughs> has it been interesting um, the only the only thing i regret like i'm new to chicago i just moved here this month okay and uh at about three o'clock in the morning i got a code i got a call from a, a chicago area 
area code. So, all right, well, I'll answer. Maybe it's someone who's like, oh, hey, it's in Chicago. And it was at 3 o'clock in the morning. And this was, I swear to God, this is the conversation. I go, hello? And the guy goes, this is Saeed. I have the tools that you need. And then he hung up on me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was nervous because I just came back from uh, a a business trip in Seattle. And this guy who works, I can't can't see who he is, but he works for this company. And he was telling me that he used to work for the Department of Defense. And one of the things that he did was he worked on this algorithm of uh, all of the calls that you make in America go through this computer, essentially, or this network of computers. And uh, it's not that, like, someone is sitting there listening to your conversation, but the algorithm looks for certain behaviors and call times and keywords. And uh, after an extent of time, and I couldn't tell you an extent of time, is to surface you and put you higher and higher on the list. Like, if you wow. keep having conversations where you use the word bomb, for example, right. uh, and, you know, it, it, like, he moves you, he moves you up. And so I did, the one guy I didn't call back, because I just got back from Seattle and I learned about this. And I was like, yeah, that's, uh, that's a conversation I don't want to follow up on. I'm going to let that one go. No thanks, Saeed. Yeah, I'm going to let it pass. Uh, but, yeah, no, it, it's really cool because people, for the most part, uh, they all call me. There, there was one person who decided they were going to have a conversation with me through text message. But everyone uh, that has read it has called me. I haven't gotten any, like, negative feedback. And I, I think that it's sort of self-selecting. Like, people aren't confrontational. Mm-hmm, right. And so they're not going to call you and be like, hey, I think we suck. Uh, so a, a lot of the feedback that I get is very positive about the book. And so I like it. I like being readily accessible. And I like that people can talk to me. And I feel like that's... That's something that, you know, when you talk about whether whether or not you should be involved with social media, it depends on where you are in life. Like, if you are a huge corporation, you're almost forced to have a profile every network just because you are so big and so ingrained in the culture that I promise you someone is talking about you on any given platform. But if you're just starting out, then it really doesn't matter. Like, to me, it's almost irrelevant where... You can you can get by just fine doing good PR, and that's really all this is. Like if you do good public relations and good marketing, then the rest of the stuff follows. Like you don't have to build up a presence on Twitter and then push out from there. You can build up a good presence in the newspapers and media, and then just happen to have a Twitter account. Uh, so what I like to tell people is this: the tools are different. Like it's not that the tools are good or bad. You know, like certainly Facebook is overhyped, and I would tell you never to spend money on Facebook, but if you find your demographic is mostly women 55 plus, you know, that's the largest demographic of American Facebook users. And so if you find that that's your demographic and that's who you want to reach out to, then it doesn't hurt for you to have a Facebook presence, but it all comes down to sitting down. And that's the thing is that we don't sit and think about this stuff. We, we just kind of go, well, Gary Vaynerchuk told me I have to be making YouTube videos. So I'm going to be making YouTube videos. Yeah. But we'll know you only make YouTube videos if you if you think that your content appeals to 12 to 17 year old young men, you know, then you should have that conversation. And so it really all comes down to what you're comfortable with, where your audience is, what you have time for. And like YouTube is a big financial investment. A lot of people don't realize that uh, there are shows that get millions of views and people go, Oh, well, you know, anyone can do that. And then you realize that those shows, are produced on a budget of like $600,000 right. per episode. 
and you know, there's just so few people that can actually go and duplicate that. The one thing I did want to kind of piggyback on, and to our listeners who might not, you know, care as much about social media, understand it, you know, older listeners perhaps, is the idea that you say personal interaction is still king. I mean, that's yeah. still the way to do it. And so I, I really like that. I want to kind of make that message clear. Those interactions are what you still believe to be extremely strong, right? Definitely, you know, I'm doing... I was reluctant to do any sort of consulting because I felt like it was contrary to what I was trying to get across the book. Uh, but then I started watching Mad Men, <laughs> and I realized, because I had been a consultant up until 2007, and I hated it because I thought that, you know, you take you take your clients no matter whether or not you like them or you take them in, you know, you know just because as long as they pay the bills, you sign the contract and you do the work. And then I was watching Mad Men, and I was like, John Draper has no contract. Like he can go up until you know, up until the most recent couple of seasons, he can go and do whatever he wants and say whatever he wants, and he can you know he's got total freedom and flexibility to stay independent but also contribute in some way. And so I was like, okay, uh, if I can do that, like if I can work for a company and can do consulting and not have a contract and work under the agreement of, I'm going to be totally honest with you at all times, and if you don't like it, uh, I can walk away. And right. be like, all right, we'll see you later. Uh, I will do that. And so I did start working with a couple of startups uh, that are technology, and they don't understand how important customer service is. And I keep saying it to them over and over, and I'm, at the, I'm kind of like, all right, guys, well, we need to have a come-to-Jesus moment about this and, and say, this has to be important. And one of them one of them is coming around, and the other one uh, is it? And the reason why is because tech companies don't think about customer relations because it doesn't scale. Like, that's what they'll tell you. Is, well, we, we can't scale this. We can't, if we have millions of users, we can't have, like, one or two customer service people. We would have to have a call center, and we would have to make the investment. I keep saying, oh, damn right you make the investment. Yeah. Because customer service drives everything. Like Zappos, all you have to do is point to Zappos yep. and say it's a it was a multi million dollar business. You know that's what they were bought for. Amazon didn't buy them because they sold shoes. Right. You know Amazon bought Zappos because of the customer service model because it's culture. Because Zappos at the end of the day is just a website. You know it just it's just a website that sells overpriced shoes. Mm-hmm. But because you can call Zappos at any point of the day. And say, hey, I'm in Vegas for the first time. I don't know where to get pizza. Yeah. And the person, they're not going to hang up on you. They're going to stay on the phone with you until you get your pizza. Yeah. And so, you know, being able to do that is important. And that to me is like key to everything. And so, you know, that's what I, I've become an advocate of in doing consulting for tech companies. Because tech companies generally are run by people who aren't, they're not the most people oriented. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I can't name companies, but I've seen some uh, pretty terrible pitches to venture capitalists and things like that because they don't understand how to interact with people. Right, yeah. And so, like, with with Facebook and Twitter, you can't call Facebook and Twitter. Like, you can the customer service. Twitter, like, has people that work in customer service, and I know who they are because they know who I am, but... Good luck going and finding those people. Oh, it's so you know, true. Like, you have a problem. Even Google. So I constantly. I was I was just gonna say even Google. I uh, do you know we use Google Apps for the nonprofit and 
it took like, I mean, they finally have a phone number you can call, but you have to jump through all these hoops and they didn't even have a phone number for the longest time. I'm like, how the hell are you Google? And you, I can't even talk to somebody. It's mind blowing. You have to Google it, man. Yeah. You know, what's really funny though, is that back in 2007, you know, I was a true, I was a true social media believer up until the breast cancer tour in 2009 and 2010, when I re-engineered it and made it more successful. I wanted to buy this set of buildings up in Potsdam, New York. And they're these really huge historic buildings that were essentially abandoned by Clarkson University. Uh, they were the original SUNY Potsdam campus, and then I guess at some point they changed hands. And so they sat you know, unused, and I said, all right, well, I have this plan where I can go and turn one of them, because one of them has this old dilapidated theater, and still does. And I can turn the theater and like into a 24/7 multimedia show where something is always happening, and then you know it's fun, and we can become a cultural destination. Like I have this whole thing planned out. And the reason why I mention this is because I wanted to buy Facebook advertising and Google advertising, and the only way I was able to get them on the phone or meet with them in person, you know, with with Google, I said, all right, I'm going to buy like a hundred thousand dollars worth of advertising. Mm-hmm. And then right away, I was able to talk to someone. Uh-huh. Like they, made, they made themselves available 24-7. I was able to get pricing. And, and that's how I found out that they control so much web traffic. Like, it's not public knowledge that they don't want you going around saying, well, they control 80% of traffic. Uh, you know, they don't want people to know that, especially the Department of Justice. <laughs> but that's how I got them on the phone. And with Facebook, I said, I'm going to buy a million dollars worth of advertising. And then the next day, I'm in New York City on Madison Avenue at their offices, uh, having like a steak dinner with them, <laughs> and and talking about doing the advertising. And actually, the project almost the project was one of those things where it almost happened. And I was working with uh, MTV and Microsoft at the last minute. MTV does what MTV always does, and goes, "Yeah, we're not going to do this." Really, <laughs> at the last possible second, so it didn't, it didn't come about. But, I mean, it's sad. Like, that's the only way to get these companies on the phone is if you flash your money to them. Oh, yeah. And it shouldn't be that way. It's funny that, that companies don't even realize that. I just came from Living Social. And just in the – I was there for a year. And just from when I started to when I left, you know, it went from this culture of we're building something and we want, you know, to change customer experience and, and local business and, and community – and then, you know, you realize you got to make money, and I understand that, but you could just see consumer experience just plummet. I mean, just absolutely plummet. And, I, you know, I I think it's apparent, and they'll, they'll figure it out. If they would have just invested in this customer experience or service earlier, I think they could have positioned themselves, you know, different from a Groupon or anything else. So it's the whole tech company not quite understanding I forgot what company it was where they were being told. I want to say it was BuzzFeed, but that might not be accurate. Where they were actively being told by venture capitalists not to have humans. <laughs> like that was that was the advice that they were given was, we will not invest in this company if you have humans on staff because they don't want they don't want that cost. And so it's almost this vicious cycle of tech companies being started by people who are not friendly and, and don't have people skills. And, and that's not to say that they're they're bad people. It's just, you know, that there's a certain mindset I think that comes with being an awesome coder and being someone who's very skilled when it comes to technology. And so there's that group of people and then those people being told not to hire humans from venture capitalists and then 
there's the model of Google, Twitter, and Facebook having just awful customer service. And so the light doesn't go off in their mind and, and where they go, all right, well, this is, this is a priority. And it's just a shame. So, like, my advice to anyone, you know, it doesn't matter what field, if you work in social media or anything, it is good customer service. Like, being able to, I mean, there's people that I've gone out and I've randomly just met them in person because they've, they've messaged me on Twitter and they're like, hey, you know, you sound like an asshole. <laughs> and I'll go, oh, well, okay, um, I'll be I'll be in your city, like, next week. Let's, let's sit down and let's talk. And then we'll be like, oh, well, okay, you're not an asshole at all. <laughs> you actually came out and, and uh, you know, you bought me lunch and you heard about what I didn't like and you addressed them. And, I mean, my problem is I like to – I really shouldn't be doing it anymore, but I like to write jokes on the internet. I like, like, I like to be funny. Right. And people see that. And, you know, like, if you go to bjmendelson.com, there's that – I have a flooding bio on it uh, where it says like about BJ and it just sounds absolutely insane oh, when yeah. you read it. You're like, wow, they're like, wow, this guy is crazy. And like, they don't realize that it's just, I'm just joking around. We right. have to deal with that where people like, they don't know how to respond to me. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so big on customer services to address that. And so for everyone's different, you might just have a product that people need a little extra help with. And so, it's important to always be available. Right. No, I totally agree. And I know we, you know, we took up a little more time than we mentioned, but it's it's an awesome topic, one that John and I are, you know, always in in some fashion, whether work or the podcast. And we mentioned, you know, your book, Social Media is Bullshit, is really useful. I think that anybody who hops on a Facebook page and wonders what they're doing there or utilizes it at work should check it out. And you mentioned your website, which is just bjmendelson.com. Anything else, you know, you where our listeners might be able to find you or check you out or recommendations? Yeah, you know, it will sound counterintuitive uh, because I I got saddled with this Twitter that I've been trying to delete. I was for waiting for that. <laughs> I mean, I, do, I don't like promoting it because people go, oh, well, social media is bullshit. But I actually keep it to show people the story because you can see I have like 700,000 followers and that came from... Uh, Twitter promoting my account during the breast cancer story. So uh -huh. I like to keep it and say, well, look at all those followers and, and now ask me where they came from. And so what I've started to do is I used to write jokes over at, at BJ Mendelssohn, but now it's become uh, resources, the stuff that I think is interesting or you know, anything that I've mentioned in our talk here, you know, I have it all up on delicious.com backslash BJ Mendelssohn. People can see like all the links and footnotes and research. But over on Twitter, if I find something that I think could be useful to uh, Trying to get a foot on, trying to get a foothold on marketing or PR or, or venture capital, I started to share it on there. So, I mean, if you want links from me or additional information, you can follow at BJ Mendelson. Again, thanks for being on. I really appreciate you reaching out. It was awesome talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you guys for having me on. All right. We'll talk to you later. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Brandon Mendelson, the author of Social Media is Bullshit. The Facebook book that he mentioned, huh, Facebook book, that's kind of funny, that he mentioned in the interview that he couldn't quite think of the name is The Facebook Effect, The Inside Story of the Company That is Connecting the World by David Kirkpatrick. Uh, we'll go ahead and link to that. So if you guys want to read that and see what he was talking about, you've got that there too. Yeah, I mean, just subscribe to us. We got, you know, we do weekly. Uh, we miss a week every now and again, but we got some great guests lined up and it is a variety show. So you never know what you're going to tune into. It'll just promise to make your commute 
or walk or trip to the John more enjoyable, in my opinion. Yeah, I find out that a lot of people listen to us while walking their dogs. All right, so just make sure you follow us at www.smartpeoplepodcast.com. Continue to be on the lookout for awesome guests. Awesome guests.